Welcome. My name is Caleb, and you are listening to the Vitamin C Podcast. So I'm recording this episode not in the best of spirits because I'm recording this the day after the Super Bowl. And you might say, oh, Caleb, are you a 49ers fan? Is that why you're so down? No, not particularly. Not particularly. I like the Niners all right. I like their coach. I like their quarterback because he's from my hometown. And I like a few other players on their team. I can tolerate the 49ers. The Kansas City Chiefs, on the other hand, I never really had a problem with until somebody had pointed out that they've got this weird dark magic energy going on, you know? It's that thing that they said for years Tom Brady had, where they were saying that Tom Brady was winning all the Super Bowls by some voodoo Satan magic type of stuff. And, you know, it was mostly as jokes, mostly to be funny. But now I'm seeing it with the Chiefs and I'm saying, you know what? That's not even a joke anymore. And it's actually unreal because they were so mediocre. Now, look, this is not a football podcast, but give me two minutes here. That's all I'm asking, two minutes. But they were so mediocre in the regular season. They seriously were borderline a bad team. They barely eked out a ton of wins, got to the playoffs, and everyone thought, okay, this is going to be the year that they don't do anything. They'll win maybe a game or two, but this isn't a Super Bowl team this year. It's just not their year. But then somehow it was. They get to the Super Bowl. You got the 49ers who, look, they had a guy get injured just jogging onto the field. And not just any injury. It's like a career-ending injury just jogging onto the field. I saw people making jokes because the Chiefs were down at halftime. They were making jokes that they had like sacrificed a child in the locker room at halftime. They had these like fake satanic ritual gifts that they were sharing. It was like the Chiefs locker room at halftime. And anyway, all this stuff, making jokes about it. But then I watched the rest of the game. I'm like, I don't know, man, (laughs) there's something here. So yeah, anyway, they somehow freaking won and props to them, I guess, but There's some serious dark magic going on there, and I don't know, man. There was this tweet I saw where it was a guy saying, Patrick Mahomes thanking God in his post-game interview as if we don't know. (laughs) Anyway, that's enough for the football talk. I'll just say I was annoyed. I was a little annoyed. I didn't feel the Chiefs were the best team this year, and usually I can justify the best team not winning as long as a really good team still wins. But in their case, they just weren't very good all year. And then they just played teams that played worse than them, it felt like. It didn't feel like they were outplaying the other team. It felt like the other team was underperforming in their playoff games. And that's not me coping. That's just me saying I watch guys perform really poorly in situations where they usually do really well. So I don't know, man. Still, they won it. Props to them. I got nothing against the Chiefs, really. I like their head coach a lot. And I like a few of their players a decent amount. And I do think people were being incredibly weird about the whole Taylor Swift thing. They're like, oh, Taylor Swift is going to ruin the Super Bowl. It's like, really? The Super Bowl where you see like two hours of program ads from an hour or two hours before kickoff to like an hour of postgame coverage. You're going to see a bunch of commercials where there are going to be a million celebrities in every commercial. There will be a ton of celebrities at the game already that they're going to cut to. 
And somehow it's going to kill your enjoyment that they're going to cut to Taylor Swift for like 30 seconds out of this five-hour broadcasting event. You got to get over yourselves, man. (laughs) You're just being weird. Anyway, speaking of devil magic, though, I guess it's time that we bring up this movie that I just watched, which was Lisa Frankenstein. So I went into this one mostly blind. I had read the synopsis when it was announced maybe a couple years ago, and I thought, that seems like my type of movie. I think I saw the synopsis when they announced that Catherine Newton was going to be starring in the film. And then I saw that it was written by Diablo Cody, who wrote Juno and Jennifer's Body, and really hasn't had a huge hit ever since. But Juno is a very good movie, in my opinion. I didn't get around to that until last year. And actually, same with Jennifer's Body. I didn't get around to that one until a year or two ago. So I got around to those way, way late. But Jennifer's Body had reached cult status by the time I watched it. So I knew that even though it wasn't received well at the time it came out, that most people now really like that movie. That they came around on that one. And then Juno was a hit at the time it came out and is still considered to be very good. And I was actually surprised how much I enjoyed Juno as well. That is a very, very good movie. But yeah, there's this Lisa Frankenstein movie that has this synopsis, a misunderstood teenager and a reanimated Victorian corpse embark on a murderous journey together to find love, happiness, and a few missing body parts. So that's not exactly the synopsis that I saw, but it's not too far off either. It's directed by Zelda Williams, who I did not recognize the name, and so I looked into it, and yeah, I really don't know anything that she has done until now. But I did not let that deter me from seeing the film. I was won over by the synopsis. I didn't see a single trailer. I said, I'm going to go into this completely blind, other than knowing more or less what it's about. And another thing, by the way, that I was kind of surprised by is that it had a PG-13 rating. And I went, oh, that can't be right. If it's the writer of Juno, Jennifer's Body, and it's supposed to be in the same vein as a movie like Jennifer's Body, there's no way it's PG-13. And sure enough, it has a PG-13 rating. And I don't quite know how even after watching the movie. Because it doesn't do anything that's way extreme. It's not gory necessarily. There's not graphic sex necessarily or extreme language. But they push the envelope about as far as they can push it in every single category, I would say. Like, I'm already getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but I will say, as far as the sexual stuff goes, I have seen R-rated films that are less suggestive than this one. This one's not even suggestive, really. It's just like, oh, hey, here's a vibrator. Oh, hey, here's this. Oh, hey, here's a penis. And so, I don't know. It's hard to tell you without spoiling too much of the movie, but there's a lot of sexual stuff in this movie, so it's definitely not for kids. Like, somehow PG-13 movies have been rebranded, and I point this to Disney owning a huge share of the PG-13 market, but PG-13 movies have become, like, these ultra-family-friendly movies for the most part in the last decade because a majority of the PG-13 movies coming out are superhero movies and Star Wars movies. And all those are family-friendly, for the most part. The only superhero movies that aren't family-friendly get the R rating, like Deadpool or Logan. But everything else is kind of made for the general audience. So you don't get a lot of PG-13 movies anymore that parents are storming out saying, hey, 
why is this in the movie? I brought my kids to see this. And it's like, well, it does say parental guidance for children under 13. So kind of how it is. But yeah, somehow PG-13 has been rebranded as like the new PG. And I'll say this movie is kind of an old school PG-13 where you're like, huh, this released in a different year or if it had maybe one more F-bomb or if it had like one more scene like this, it would probably be R-rated. And I'll say that this is one that I think they should have probably just committed to the R rating because I think they had to do a little too much to keep it PG-13. I feel like this was written to be R and they thought that it would work better PG-13 because it was maybe a little borderline. And I think if they just leaned in a bit more to the R rating, it might have worked better for me. But again, getting ahead of myself because point blank, I'll just tell you guys, I didn't really like this movie at all. I was mostly into it because I liked the idea, but I just wasn't really loving it in any way. First of all, the main character, played by Catherine Newton, is Lisa, of course. And I'm a fan of Catherine Newton in at least one thing I've seen her in. I like her in The Map of Tiny Perfect Things. I think that movie's quite underrated, and I enjoy her in that one. I think she's kind of bland in Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, but that is not her fault. And then in this one, I found her right away to be very unconvincing in this role. And then she kind of eases into it, or maybe I eased into her character a little bit. But right off the bat, I felt like her line reads were so soulless that I just wasn't really into it. I mean, that's kind of the whole point of the character is that she is kind of closed off and quiet. But I wasn't really buying her routine at first. But she starts talking more and more as the movie goes on, and that's when I felt like she was actually giving a pretty good, normal performance. But also in this movie, I'll shout out a few other members of the cast. There is Lisa or Liza Soberano, who plays Lisa's stepsister in this movie. There's Carla Giugino, who I'm a fan of, but she plays Lisa's stepmom. There is Joe Crest, who plays Lisa's father, and then Cole Sprouse plays the undead boy in this movie. Because, yeah, the whole idea, it's kind of like a Corpse Bride type thing. I mean, it's really a lot like Corpse Bride in that through some dark voodoo magic, the type of stuff Patrick Mahomes uses to win his football games, she accidentally revives this guy from the dead some dude from the Victorian era. She goes to this haunted cemetery because she's weird and she hangs out by this one gravestone in particular and she'll just have conversations, you know. But one night when she's not having a great night, I'll just leave it at that, she says that she wishes she were with that guy. And then what do you know, there's a huge lightning storm that night and this guy comes back from the dead and he's all gross and corpsey. And he just wants to be with her. And he's under the impression that she wanted to be with him because she said she wished she was with him. But what she meant is she wished she was in the ground with him, like dead. So kind of a miscommunication. Kind of like in Corpse Bride, how he accidentally proposes to a dead girl because he's just practicing proposing to his girlfriend at the time that he wants to marry. And he puts the ring on what he realizes is the finger of a dead girl. And she says, I do. And then that becomes sort of his dead wife for the remainder of the movie. And I'll say that Corpse Bride, despite me not being a huge fan of Tim Burton's movies, quite frankly, I think Corpse Bride actually handles this material a lot better. 
I found it to be a much more enjoyable film. There were several points in this one where I thought, hmm, kind of getting Corpse Bride vibes from this. And I'm not being the guy who there's the tweet about because there's the tweet that says, guy who's only ever seen Boss Baby watching another movie for the first time, getting strong Boss Baby vibes from this movie. No, that's not me here because look, this is her accidentally giving somebody the impression that she wants to be with them, somebody that's dead, and then that person becomes kind of attached to them through the rest of the movie, despite there being a miscommunication. And not just that, this dead Victorian boy plays piano at one part, and they have a little duet where he plays piano and she sings, which in Corpse Bride, she's playing the piano, and then he comes to play piano with her, and they have a little piano duet, and I actually really love that song. But yeah, instead in this one, he plays the piano and then she sings this one song. And I'll say her vocals were uh, uninspiring to me. (laughs) That sounds mean, but yeah, I didn't think she sounded that good. But, you know, she had fun singing. And I guess that was the whole point of the scene is that they were just enjoying having a little jam together. But I guess my problem with this movie is that it should be funny. It should at least be funny in like a dark way and there were maybe a couple things that made me chuckle but largely I wasn't really laughing and I feel it didn't lean enough into the horror side of it either because it definitely wasn't scary at all not even for one second of the movie and okay sure maybe it's not trying to be that scary but it just got to a point where it's like well what is this for me then because I'm not really feeling the romantic side of this movie There's not really anything making me laugh, so as far as the teen comedy side goes, not really feeling it. It's not scary, so what is there for me to enjoy here? Because on paper, this sounds kind of like a horror-slash-rom-com, which seems like a great idea, but I just feel it didn't do any of those things well enough for me to enjoy it. Like, the romantic side, I guess you can argue it does well by the end, But another thing that's nasty is just that Cole Sprouse, who plays the dead Victorian boy, he just looks disgusting the whole movie. And they even emphasize that he smells really bad. And so the whole time I'm just like, ugh. Even when she's around him, I'm just like, ugh. He's got like worms crawling on him and stuff. On top of that, there are a few things in this movie that are just totally unresolved. Totally unresolved. Like there's one plot point about Lisa losing her mom... And I thought, oh, this is going to be a big part of the movie is her coming to terms with the fact that her mom's dead and, you know, moving on from that. And honestly, I feel like there is nothing done with that. Like I'm having a hard time remembering them doing anything significant with that. And it also shows that her mom is killed by some random intruder who's in a mask. And then it establishes that her dad got with the stepmom literally like six months later. And so I thought, okay, the dad did it. And then you meet the dad, and he's just the dorkiest, wimpiest guy. And I said, oh, that's all an act. And there's going to be a point in this where you realize it's an act, right? No. They never do anything with that. Like, literally nothing. It's like, what's the point in establishing that her mom was murdered if, one, this movie doesn't really do anything to show her adapting or overcoming the loss of her mother and coming back into the real world? And two, if we never get any type of closure whatsoever on why some random dude in a mask busted into their house and killed the mom, and then also establish that the dad got with the stepmom like six months later, 
But like literally, there's nothing there by the end. No hints or anything or no type of closure. And I just kept thinking like, he had to have been the guy to do it based on the timeline they gave, but it's like they just forgot about that plot point and just moved on after sort of establishing that in the first 15 minutes. So there's a lot in the first 15 minutes that I feel it does not dwell on at all after that. I thought that was weird, like they're set up for stuff that there's no payoff. And I've already complained about some of the other stuff. So yeah, I don't know. This is a good idea for a movie, and I don't know if it's that it was poorly written or if it's that it was a good idea that was well-written and just poorly executed by the director. I don't really know who to blame for this one. Now, there are a few things that it does well. I'm not going to just bash on this the whole time. A few things worked. One is that there is this animated opening sequence. It's like the opening title cards with this animation, and I think there's a piano tune going to it as well. And I really like that opening animation. I thought it was really unique looking and... I felt immediately pulled into the movie. I actually remember thinking in the first five minutes, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm probably about to love this movie. And then I was just so disappointed with the rest of it that I really wasn't. And then I'll also say that the soundtrack to the movie was very good. So it was filled with 80s songs. And yeah, I would just say that there were some very good needle drops throughout the movie. It had a jukebox style soundtrack and that worked. You can find the soundtrack to the movie online, but I thought it was good. So there are a few things that worked for me. And I'll also say that visually, there are times where I thought it had an interesting look to it. And then other times it kind of looked bland. So I don't know. And also keep in mind, by the way, I watched this movie like five days ago. And then the day I was going to record this episode, I woke up freaking sick as a dog. And so I wasn't able to record this until a few days after I originally intended to. So that's an unfortunate thing where not everything is as fresh in my mind, but from what I remember, I like the soundtrack and I remember there are at least a few points where I thought visually that looks pretty cool. But largely, unfortunately, I just was not a huge fan of this movie. So far I'm seeing a lot of people are enjoying it in the general audience. So I might just be the one weirdo that didn't like it. But to me, there was just too much that didn't work for me to give it a pass. I would not watch this movie again. I don't even know if there is a scene I would rewatch in this movie. Specifically, nothing really sticks out. If this sounds 100% like your cup of tea, I'd say, sure, if you want to watch it, go ahead. But keep in mind that I thought this movie was 100% going to be for me as well. So just fair warning there. But anyway, those are my thoughts on Lisa Frankenstein. I really wish I loved this one more than I did because obviously I really didn't love it at all. But some of you may have seen on Instagram that I had asked for some questions. So I'm now going to turn over to the Q&A section of this podcast. This might become a more regular thing that I do. Maybe I do it on the weekly episodes. Maybe I only do it once a month. But we'll see. I got some very good questions this time around. I don't know how consistently I'll get good questions when I put this out there, but we're just going to test it out and see how it goes. See if this is a segment that people like. See if it's one that I like, quite frankly, because I don't really know yet. And we'll go from there. But that is a wrap on Lisa Frankenstein, by the way. So those are my full thoughts on that without going too deep into spoilers. 
And now I will turn to the Q&A section in which if this feels disjointed at all, then hey, I'm doing my best here. I'm just going to go one question at a time and try to give full attention to each question that I answer. So here we go. So the first question is top three favorite film scores slash soundtracks. So I'm going to break that into two categories here. I'll do favorite film scores, then favorite soundtracks. There are some movies that have a good combination of both, but I'm just going to isolate the two. So for film scores, first I would have Hans Zimmer's score for Interstellar. I would then have M83's score for Oblivion. And then Max Richter and Lauren Balfe's score for Ad Astra, which barely, barely beats out Ludwig Gordonson's score for Tenet for me. I just have a more personal connection to the Ad Astra score, but Ludwig Gordonson's score for Tenet is right up there as well. For soundtrack, I would have Across the Spider-Verse as my top soundtrack. Look, it might be recency bias, but Metro Boomin produced a great album for that movie, and I really love the movie as well. Then I would have Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby soundtrack at number two. I like that movie, and a huge reason are a lot of the stylistic decisions that Baz Luhrmann made. One of those was having a very modern soundtrack with this very old-school movie. The soundtrack is filled with Kanye, Jay-Z. It's got the Lana Del Rey Young and Beautiful song in it. Huge fan overall, so that one would be my number two. And then at number three, some people might be expecting me to say Twilight here, but actually I prefer New Moon of the Twilight Saga movies. I just personally listen to that album a lot more than Twilight's, despite them both having good soundtracks. Those would be my top three film scores and soundtracks. Okay, this next question is straight up. It has been on my mind for the entire weekend since I saw it. And this question is, what actor would you put in a Star Wars film and what role would they have? So the go-to actor that I think of for just about anything is Jake Gyllenhaal. Anytime I come across some weird genre and I think, oh, what actor would be cool for this? Huh, Jake Gyllenhaal. It's because, look, I love Jake Gyllenhaal's movies. I find them all, almost all of them, incredibly fascinating and I always am a fan of his performances in those films. So I would love to see him in a Star Wars movie because I think he could do something interesting there. As far as what character I would want him to play or what type of character, originally I thought, oh, he'd be cool as like a Jedi that's being tempted by the dark side. Then I thought, uh, he would probably end up being very similar to what Hayden Christensen's Anakin was. So then I jumped over to the fact that I think he would actually be very fun as kind of the side scoundrel type character. Not to say he's a Han Solo necessarily, but one of those guys that is not a Jedi. He's just along for the ride, but I want him to channel some of his chaotic energy that you see in stuff like Ambulance. I think he'd be great at that personally. So that would be my answer. Jake Gyllenhaal as some side character, probably in the scoundrel type. Okay, this next question is a very good one. It's what is the biggest make or break criteria for a film? So this is one I thought all about because if you guys listen to my podcast, you know that one of the first things I point to is the visual quality of a movie, which a lot of that comes back to the director. And that's one thing that I always cite with movies where if it looks bad, I'm checked out. I'm completely out. But that being said, I think it kind of depends if it's a movie that costs less than $100 million, then to me, the writing is first and foremost the most important thing. That's the make or break criteria for the film. 
If it is over 100 million, then I think the spectacle side of it becomes a little more important if you're watching it in a theater at least. Even at home for me, it's make or break, but in the theater especially, I can think of several big blockbuster movies that the writing's not that good, but the spectacle is there. So take Avatar, for example. It's not a brilliantly written movie, in my opinion. I think it has a very basic plot. I think the characters are interesting enough, but there's really nothing groundbreaking in that first film. However, the visuals behind it are so incredible, so breathtaking, that it made people feel like they were experiencing something new and different. And so to me, that's where the visuals almost trump the writing. But for a majority of movies, I do think the writing is the make or break. How characters are written, them being consistent with their personalities and the decisions that they make, and just the movie itself following a logical path that is structured well enough that people can follow and be invested in the story. This next question is kind of funny, but it is, what's a movie genre you don't like that you wish you did? So I'll be straight up. There really aren't a ton of genres that I don't like. I feel like I can get into a movie from just about any genre as long as it connects with me in some way or another. So take musicals, for example. It's not my favorite genre, but La La Land's in my top 10 favorite movies. I like Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. I like Tick, Tick, Boom. And there are at least a handful of other musicals I've seen that I think are pretty good movies. So even that genre, which isn't my favorite, I still like quite a few movies in there. So that's what's kind of tough. I don't really dislike a ton of movies, but I will say I'm very bad with horror movies. I don't mind if it's a creature feature, if it's like, you know, a werewolf, an alien, some other big type of monster. I can deal with that. I can do slashers. I love slashers, actually. But the demonic horror possession movies, I don't do that well with those. And I wish I could tolerate them, but I just can't. So if I were to say any genre that I don't love that I wish I did, this is kind of a genre within a genre. But yeah, movies that are too scary for me, like the demonic possession movies, like Take the Conjuring, for example, can't do it. And I wish I could, but I can't do it. So that would be the genre for me. The next question is most nostalgic movie for you. So this one is kind of tough because it's me debating between every Star Wars movie. So it would have to be Return of the Jedi for me because even though Empire was probably my favorite as a kid, Return of the Jedi was the one that I rewatched the most. Don't really know why, can't explain it. But that was the one that I rewatched the most, probably because there's a huge monster at the beginning and Luke is fighting with his lightsaber within the first half hour, whereas I got to wait a really long time in Empire before he's really swinging that thing around. So that's probably the main reason. But yeah, for me, it would be Return of the Jedi. I still remember popping the VHS into that and having to rewind the VHS so we could start from the beginning and watching that movie over and over as a kid. Another one like that would also be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 Secret of the Ooze. Can't explain why because it's not actually a good movie, but did I rewatch that one all the time as a kid? Yes, I did. So I guess it would be Return of the Jedi and Secret of the Ooze as my most nostalgic films. 
comfort character slash characters. So for those who don't know, a comfort character is a character that brings you comfort, whether because you connect with their story or their struggles or their personality, it doesn't really matter. It just matters that you connect with them in some capacity. So the first name that came to mind for me was Jimmy McGill from Better Call Saul. I really connect with Jimmy because a lot of people on the show don't get Jimmy. And a lot of people that watch the show also don't get Jimmy, but I get Jimmy. I get his personality. I get why he does the things he does. And I feel like Jimmy would get me as well. Then I would have Mr. Fox from Wes Anderson's adaptation of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Kind of similar to Jimmy in a lot of ways, but again, he's somebody that not everybody understands why he does what he does, but I do. I really do. Next up would be George Costanza from the show Seinfeld. You might think, oh, George, he's a terrible person. He thinks the whole world's out to get him, and for some reason, he's out to get the whole world. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I dig him. <laughs> that's, why I, that's why I love George Costanza. I totally get his personality. I like to think I'm not as horrible of a person, but I've been there for sure. Lastly would be the character Margot from the movie Paper Towns. So that's a movie that got kind of mixed reception, and I think a big reason why is because she's the most interesting character, and she's only in the movie for about 10 minutes. Even though the whole movie's kind of about her, she's really only on screen for like 10 minutes. But she's got a personality that people in the movie don't get, and that's a big part of the story. They don't really understand her. She's kind of a mystery. But I actually do get her character by the end of it, and I connect with her character a lot. That's the reason I actually like that movie. So off the top of my head, those would be my comfort characters, I suppose. The final question here is alien or aliens. I feel like I've probably talked about this on my podcast before, but these movies are kind of heavily debated amongst alien fans because some people prefer the OG alien movie, which is alien directed by Ridley Scott. And other people prefer the sequel directed by James Cameron. The sequel is more of an action horror movie, I would say, whereas the first movie has more of a slasher creature feature feel to it as opposed to the sequel. So I actually much preferred the original one. It's not even close for me, actually. Aliens is fun for sure, but I just think the first movie is much scarier. And to me, that goes a very long way. So I'm an alien guy through and through, Ridley Scott guy through and through. Sorry, but alien for me. But anyway, I appreciate you guys submitting these questions. Uh, It took me a lot longer to think about some of these than others. And some of these I thought I'm just going to riff in the moment and see what works. So hopefully you guys enjoyed this segment. Maybe next time I'll get a few more questions in. I think I got some really good ones this time. So I appreciated that. They were ones that I think had a good amount of thought put into them. And therefore I tried to give a good amount of thought on these before answering. Anyway, feedback is always appreciated with this podcast. So let me know if you guys enjoyed this segment or if this is something that maybe I shouldn't do too often. Either way, that's going to be a wrap for today. I appreciate you guys for tuning in. As always, if you are not already, then please give this podcast a follow if you are not already. And also give me a follow on Instagram. You can find me under the username at vitamin C pod. There you can find updates both on this podcast and on movies in general. Thanks again for tuning in, guys. You'll hear from me next week.